Uh, If you could open your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. So last week we started a new series called A Theory of Everything, A Theory of Everything. And uh, we want to continue that. I think uh, this is, uh, I can't remember, an eight or nine week series, but basically for two months we'll be exploring uh, the book of Colossians together. If you're not familiar with kind of how we do sermon series here at Mosaic, most of the time we preach through books of the Bible. And uh, uh, so right now we are doing Colossians. Let's read verses 15 to 23. Uh, Verses 15 to 23. If you're looking at the Bible in front of you, we should be able to read it uh, out loud together because we'll all be on the same page, uh, literally. But let's read out loud Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You ready? Here we go. It says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So you've heard of fake news. You've seen bizarre examples of it on your news feed as sensational and unbelievable stories pop up that make us say, they can't be real, right? Really, they can't be real. You've read the tweets of a certain president who regularly calls things fake news. And so we read the news on Facebook or we watch it on YouTube and and we're confused. We wonder what's real and what's fake. What's true and what's false what's good, and what's bad. Believe it or not, things weren't that different 2,000 years ago. Amid competing religious ideas, the first Christians bore witness to something that they called good news. In fact, you've probably heard of this term, the gospel. Raise your hand if you've heard the term before. Probably you have. Hopefully you have. Uh, But there's a lot of confusion about what that word gospel actually means. Is it the first four books of the Bible, or the first four books of the New Testament, rather? The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. If you look at the headings in those books, that's what it says. The Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark. Is it those first four books of the New Testament? Or is Gospel uh, a style of music? Or is Gospel a set of ideas in a dusty old creed written by a a bunch of European dudes hundreds of years ago? There's a lot of confusion over just exactly what the gospel means. But the word gospel 
that is in this passage and that we're going to look at here was a very common word. It was a Greek word that people in Paul's day and people in Jesus's day used all the time. It was a royal word. It was a word of announcement. It was frequently used to describe what would happen when a royal messenger would show up in a town to relay important royal news. He would show up to describe the king's birth or the king's significant acts, including perhaps the king's victories in battle. And so this royal messenger would arrive in the town square of cities like Colossae, and he would show up in the town square, and he would blow his trumpet, and people would gather around because there was a royal messenger, a representative coming from the king to announce good news. This announcement was good news to the citizens of these ancient cities. And so what the Christians did, the first Christians did, is they adopted this word. They adopted the word gospel because they were like, we have good news. Our news is really good news about the great deeds of a king. So the gospel then is an announcement of good news about who the king is and what he's done. It's not fake news. Good news. It's news that changes the world. So last week when we kicked off our series in Colossians, we explained that Paul, in this letter of Colossians, he says that Jesus is our theory of everything. He's the clue that makes sense of, of the, the most complex parts of our universe, the most difficult dilemmas of life, the most mundane parts of life. Jesus is the thing, the one thing that makes sense of Everything. That's what Paul is teaching. That's at the heart of this ancient 2,000-year-old letter. So what we want to do today is to continue our exploration. And specifically today, we'll see how the good news about Jesus is crucial to making sense of life. If you want to have a theory of everything, it has to center upon the good news. Jesus is the theory of everything for Christians. And we proclaim, and we live by, and we are shaped by this good news. If you look at verse 23, the very last verse in our passage, Paul said, um, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Paul said, I'm a servant of this good news. Whatever the good news is, and we haven't quite defined that yet, but whatever this good news is, I'm a servant of it, and it has been proclaimed throughout the world. It was probably his way of saying throughout the Roman Empire. The gospel, this good news that Paul has been devoting himself to, has been proclaimed throughout the empire. So what is this gospel? He, he ends this part of the, the text by talking about this gospel. So what was it that he was talking about? You look at the previous six verses and you see just how Paul defines the gospel. You see how Paul describes this good news. And this isn't the only passage that he does it. 1 Corinthians 15 is a, is a really classic passage where Paul unpacks what the good news is. But here's one text where he comes at it from a slightly different angle through the perspective of Jesus as the king. Jesus as the king. And really, that's what we want to explore today, is that the good news is that Jesus is the king. And this royal status covers all of life, summed up in two terms, creation and redemption. Jesus is the king of creation, and Jesus is the king of 
redemption. Let's look at verse 15 to see how Jesus is the king of creation. Now, I'm going to say in advance, this verse is a little bit intricate. It's a little bit deep. Um, and we're going we're gonna to jump off the, uh, off the diving board and go all the way in. Okay? So hang on with me. Verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What in the world does that mean? There's three really important terms in this verse that I think will help us to understand what it means when it's describing how Jesus is the king over creation. The first important word there is image. It says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you were Jewish, if you had the Old Testament scriptures, as so many of these first Christians did, the word image was a loaded word. You wouldn't read the word image and just kind of gloss over it. No, you would know that it had lots and lots and lots of significance. And if you've hung out at Mosaic at any point in the last four years, you know that one doctrine of the church that we have talked about a lot is something called the Imago Dei, the image of God, that humanity, human beings, male and female, we are created in the image of God. This is the teaching of the Old Testament, especially in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God crafts Adam and Eve. He makes them in his image. So they are distinct. They are unlike the animals. They are unlike the plants. They are different. They have a God awareness, and they are given a royal task, a royal mandate to rule the earth, to exercise dominion over it. They're like the, the prime minister serving under the king, the creator king. This is who humanity is. And because human beings are made in God's image, that's why we talk about the inherent dignity and worth of every single human being. Whether you're unborn, whether you're disabled, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're homeless, people that society tends to push to the margins, those are the ones that because of the fact that they are made in God's image, Jesus brings to the center. What Paul does in this verse is it kind of flips everything around. The Jews were used to reading about humanity being made in the image of God. And suddenly, Paul doesn't contradict any of that. He agrees with all of that. But he throws in a little twist to help us understand it a little better. He says that Jesus is the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to say something. Don't misunderstand it. Hang with me here. It means that Jesus shows us what it's like to be human. Jesus shows us what it's like to be human. Who was the most human human being who's ever lived? The most human human being to ever live. Was it Napoleon? Was it Michael Jackson? Genghis Khan? The most human human being. Well, what would constitute being a human being? What are human beings called to do? Well, if you accept the biblical teaching, you go back to Genesis 1, what we just talked about. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, says that humanity's responsibility is to rule the earth under the Father. God created Adam and gave him that task, and Adam promptly squandered it. God called Israel to do something similar, and they squandered it. Throughout history, human beings have been trying and failing to live up to our calling as human beings, and we have all failed because of the entrance of sin into the world. But Jesus comes as God in the flesh, and he comes not just as God. We'll talk about that in a second. 
but he comes as a man. Sometimes Christians are known for emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning that we believe that he's God, and we certainly do. We believe that he is very God of very God. But what sometimes gets forgotten is that Christianity falls if Jesus is also not truly human. He's very human of very human. And that's what this word image here helps us to understand. You see, Adam is not the template, and then Jesus comes as the last Adam, and he's made as a sort of upgraded version of Adam, who just does better. No, Jesus is the original, and Adam is made in his image, and all human beings subsequently flow out of that. We are made in the perfect image of God. Jesus shows us what it's like to be human meaning that he values our humanity. He values our human experiences. Christianity is not some religious pie-in-the-sky escapism where it's about some ever-yonder-after kind of thing. But yes, we believe in a hereafter. We believe in a life after death. But it changes how we live now. It's not just about then. It's about today. And because God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ, what Christians call the incarnation, it means that our humanity matters. A person is not just a spirit, a spirit in a body made in God's image. Jesus shows us what it's like to be human. <clears throat> but the second part of the verse shows us that Jesus shows us what it's like to be God. It says that he's the image of the invisible God, image of the invisible God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can struggle to relate to God. I've never shaken his hand, never given him a bro hug. I've never slapped him on the back. He's never slapped me on the back. Never been able to like have a conversation with God like I can have with Phil or, or, with, or with Francesco or somebody else. Like, it doesn't work that way because the Bible says that God is spirit. So how do I interact with a spirit? How do I interact and relate with and understand someone that I have never, ever seen? This verse says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus comes in part to show us what God is like. Now, Jesus came to accomplish many things. He came to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute to satisfy the requirements of God's holy law. He came to reverse the curse that had been, been put upon the earth because of Adam's sin way back in the garden. But he also comes to show us who God is. Because humanity, for thousands of years, we've been struggling. There were glimpses of God in the Old Testament. Moses saw God in the burning bush, but he's like, I don't know, how do you talk to a burning bush? And you remember, Moses struggled with that. He didn't know what to do. Other people saw glimpses of God's glory throughout the Old Testament. And sometimes God would appear as, as what's called the angel of the Lord. And, but it was never quite the same. And so God said, one day, I will just become one of them. He did it to save us, yes. But he also does it to reveal himself to us. To show us what God is like. So if you ever wonder, what is God like? Look at Jesus. If you ever wonder, what would, what would God do if he were here today? Read the Gospels. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus shows us exactly who God is. That's part of the point 
of God becoming a man. So he's the image of the invisible God. He shows us what it's like to be human, but he also shows us what it's like to be God. The, the third really important phrase in this verse is firstborn. He's firstborn over all creation. Now, this is where some people can get hung up. and They're like, well, Jesus was never born in the sense of like, well, he's God, right? He's always been around. But then others are like, well, but yeah, but Jesus was born in a manger. We know these stories. So how do we sort this out? What does this mean? Some people will teach. If you've ever run into, say, Jehovah's Witnesses on the, on the streets of Eastern Parkway, not far from here, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was born, that he was, he was birthed, not like we do in Bethlehem's manger, but that, that he had a beginning point. So he's not truly God in the sense that we think he is. He's just a really important sort of deity. But that there's God who's always been around, and then there's Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation. That's how they would take this. But I would suggest very strongly that that is a misreading of this verse. The word firstborn, again, it's a very common word that was used back then. And it was oftentimes used as a metaphor. And it talked about not actual birth, but rank. So I could say something like, you know, I'm the, I'm the firstborn over Phil when it comes to drinking coffee. And what that means is, not that I was born before Phil and started drinking coffee first, because I don't even actually know whether Phil is older than me or not. But what it means is, I am saying that in my opinion, I'm the supreme coffee drinker over Phil. Okay? It's a way of talking about supremacy. It's a way of talking about status. So... In the ancient world, they could talk about entire nations being firstborn or entire movements being firstborn. It didn't mean actual birth because the, the Bible clearly teaches and Christianity has always maintained for 2,000 years now that God the Son never, ever began. God has always existed from eternity past. I know that that is deep and it's difficult to wrap our minds around it. I have trouble wrapping my mind around it. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. The difference about God the Son is that there was a, a point in time in which God the Son became Jesus of Nazareth. God the Son was not always Jesus of Nazareth. That was a, that was a human thing that was accomplished what Christians call the incarnation. That's what happened at Christmas. God becomes a man. Why? So that he could show us what God is like. And so he is this firstborn over all creation. He is, this is a way of saying that he is the Lord. It's just a, an ancient way of saying he's the king. He's the boss. He's the, he's the ruler. He's the one to whom we should all bow. Now, reminds me of an account from 180 AD. So just over 1,800 years ago, there were about a half dozen African followers of Jesus from North Africa who were taken to the city of Carthage. They were charged with a crime. Their crime was that they were followers of Jesus. And that might seem really odd to us because... It's not a crime in America to be a Christian. Nobody's locking us up. No government is taking away our Bibles. It's not the way it works. We have great freedom. But 1830-something years ago in the city of Carthage, these 
handful of Christians were arrested for being Christian. The problem was not so much that they were Christian. Because as I've explained before, the Roman Empire didn't mind if you worshipped the god of your choice. See, the Roman Empire, they would, they would conquer a new nation, conquer a new territory, conquer a new culture. And they would say, whenever they did it, they'd say, hey, you can keep your gods and your goddesses. Just so long as you also worship the emperor. Your, your gods, you can say that they're lord, but you must also say that Caesar is lord. There were two groups of people that had a problem with that. Most, most conquered peoples, they would say, sure, we'll, we'll worship the Greek gods and goddesses and we'll worship Caesar. But the Jews and the Christians were the two groups that drew lines in the sand and said, no, actually, if Jesus is Lord, in the case of the Christians, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar cannot be Lord. And so what it meant to be Christian in the ancient Roman Empire 2,000 years ago was to make some clear and unmistakable lines in the sand about who we were as a people. These six folks stood trial, and, and uh, the governor in Carthage, his name was Saturnius. I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. But he said, look, you guys can have mercy from our Lord, the emperor, if you return to your senses. One of these North African Christian spiritists said, we have never done anything wrong. We don't treat people unfairly. We don't speak ill of anyone. We obey our own ruler. You catch what he's saying? Because Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. We have our own ruler. We have our own emperor, the firstborn over all creation. The governor replied. He said, well... You know, we too, we're, we're religious, and our religion is simple. We swear by the birth spirit of our Lord the Emperor, and we offer sacrifices for his help. You must do this as well. The Christian said, we do not acknowledge the authority of this world, but rather we serve the God whom no one has seen or can see with these eyes. They're worshiping an invisible God. How could they have that kind of faith as they're standing trial awaiting capital punishment? Because they've, they've heard of this one who is the image of the invisible God. The governor said, all right, you, you guys, you obviously need some time to think this over. Would you like 30 days? 30 days to think this over because I'm going to kill you. And they said, we don't need 30 days. We are Christians. Reminds me of what my dad always used to say. He would say, uh, son, there are times when you don't have to pray about a decision. He's like, when there's right and there's wrong... You don't pray over whether or not you should do the right thing. You just do it. God doesn't expect you to pray. He just expects you to obey. And these Christians, these half a dozen North African Christians became martyrs in this moment because they said, since Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, since he is the king, there is no other king before whom we will bow in worship. They said, we will respect Caesar. We'll pay taxes. But because Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And then in comfortable 21st century America, when our lives are not on the line, we want to quibble over how serious we want to be with our Christianity. We want to quibble over how deeply we're going to follow the claims of this one who is the king of the universe. I think these African martyrs would stand before us and they'd stand with Paul and they'd be like, 
Are you kidding us? Like we laid down our lives because we believed that he is the firstborn over all creation. He is this, this entitled king of the universe with a status unlike any other. But if you continue and look at verse 16, it says that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the king of creation because he made everything. He's the creator. He's the one who's breathed the universe into existence. And Paul said, just in case you're wondering which parts he made, he made them all. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything that's visible, everything that's invisible. That should cover everything, right? There's nothing left. You've got visible, invisible, heaven and earth. You've got it all. Now, you might remember that last week I said that the, the church in Colossae was struggling because there were a group of these mystics spouting some alternative theories. And they really keyed in on the realm of angels and demons. In Colossians chapter 2, there's an extended discussion about whether or not Christians need to fear demons. Um, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, but there's this extended discussion because there are these, there are these teachers in ancient Colossae who are saying, hey, we have secret knowledge. We can get you in touch with the mystical world. We can get you in touch with the angels and demons. And, and you, you go to this this seance, or you go here and you do this, or you learn these magic rites and rituals, and you gain secret knowledge that will liberate your soul, and you'll be set free. And so the Christians were confused. They're like, are, are we supposed to be afraid of the spirit world, or, or are we supposed to like worship? Are we supposed to dabble in it? What are we supposed to do? And Paul writes to them, and he begins to demonstrate that Jesus is the king over the creation. And he's like, in particular, I want you to know one part of the creation that he's the king over. He's the king over the spirit world. That's what thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities are. It was a very common way of referring to the spirit world. Thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, rulers. These were all terms for angels 2,000 years ago. Paul said you're afraid of angels. Or maybe you worship angels. Either way, they're both a mistake. They're both an error because Jesus is the king of creation. Why would you worship an angel that Jesus made? Instead, worship the one that made the angel. Why would you be afraid of an angel that Jesus made? Instead, trust him who has conquered the powers at the cross, as chapter 2 says. You see... Are you understanding how Jesus is the theory of everything? Jesus is the one who makes sense of everything. And so Jesus, Paul says, is the king over creation. So they're, they're running around, either, either trying to dabble in the, in the mystical world. Maybe they're afraid of it. Maybe they're worried about their voodoo dolls. Maybe they're trying to tap into some psychic supernatural energy. Either way, whichever side of it they're on, Paul's like, you're all wrong. Jesus is the king over over the spirit world because the spirit world is part of creation and he's the king over all of it. What's in heaven, what's in earth, what's visible, what's invisible. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Verse 17 says that he's before all things and by him all things hold together. Christianity does not teach that Jesus is some sort of um, 
clockmaker who way back when started the earth and kind of wound the clock and just set everything in motion and then stepped back and he's like, I'll see you in several thousand years. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Sometimes people have a view of God that's much like that, this divine clockmaker who just steps back from everything and lets the universe unfold as it will. But the Bible teaches that Christianity, or that God is not like that. Jesus is actively involved in his creation. The second half of verse 17 says, because of Jesus, all things hold together. What does that mean? It means there would be no universe today if Jesus did not hold it together. It means that tomorrow there will be no universe unless Jesus holds it together. And I know we, we have scientific theories to explain different things, and I'm not saying those theories are wrong. That's not at all what I'm saying. But, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're a kid and you get to the point where you find out what shape the earth is, we always wonder, like, well, why don't we fall off, right? Did you ever wonder that when you were a kid? I know when I first found out, I was like, how in the world do we not fall off the earth? And then, then you learn about gravity, right? And how gravity, like, holds us together. And it's, it's the scientific explanation for ideas that I think the Bible would say Jesus is standing behind it all. Jesus is the cause of gravity. Jesus is the cause of all the scientific laws in the universe. He is the one standing behind it all. I'm not saying this in an anti-science way. God made all the scientific stuff, right? But he is the one standing behind it, standing in between it, standing around it, sustaining it and upholding it by the word of his power. This is the king over creation. And the reason why the good news is such good news, the reason why Paul could show up in Colossae and blow his horn and say, hey, people, I've got good news, it was because this king was not just a regular, ordinary king. I mean, they, they'd seen different kings come and go. There were Greek kings and Roman emperors and Egyptian queens. And, like, there were all different kinds of leaders. And they all died. And they all faded away. And their kingdoms eventually crumbled. But Paul shows up and he's like, I have a king who is different than all those other kings because he is the king over creation. He's the one who breathed everything into existence. He's the one who keeps everything in existence. He's the king of creation. But he's also the king of redemption. If there's two main ideas in this passage, it's that Jesus is the king of creation and Jesus is the king of redemption. Verse 18 through 20 kind of shifts gears a little bit and talks about how the king rescues his subjects. So verse 18 says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again. So that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him. To reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the king of redemption. So what is redemption? Last week I said that it's kind of like going into a pawn shop. Let's say that you had a really expensive piece of jewelry, maybe from your grandma, it's a family heirloom, and, and you couldn't make rent one month. And so you had to go and sell it. You're able to pay rent. Then you work really hard, and uh, some friends helped you out. And a week later, you're able to go back into that pawn shop to redeem that jewelry, to buy back 
that which already belongs to you. Now, it'll cost you something, right? You can't just walk in and be like, yo, that's my grandma's jewelry. The guy's like, no, it's mine. You sold it to me last week. And when we go into that pawn shop, we buy back something that's ours. Redemption in the biblical idea is when the king buys back someone that's his. When the king shows up to rescue and redeem and buy back a people for himself. But it costs the king something. And we all know that the cost for the king was his life. Jesus lays down his life on the cross. And as a result, this verse says he becomes the head of the body, the church. The king is ruling over the church just like a head is in charge of the body. Right? My brain is up here, so my head's in charge, I guess, uh, is, what, is what Paul was trying to help us understand here. And Jesus is the head of the body He's the king of the church. You see, the redemption that Jesus offers, the rescue that Jesus provides, is something that is more than just about me. A lot of times we think of Christianity as just an individual transaction between me and God. I think part of that is because we live in America, and America really emphasizes individualism. Just, just you, just, just you, just be you, right? That's what we say. Uh, but Christianity teaches something far, far different. It teaches, yes, that Jesus comes to save individuals. He also comes to reconcile people groups. He also comes to reform structures of society that are so shot full of sin that they're just churning out injustice everywhere we look. He comes to redeem and reconcile every square inch of society, and eventually the earth itself will be restored through the rescue, the redemption that Jesus provides. Part of the rescue that is described in this verse is a, it's a family rescue. You see, I wasn't just rescued, I wasn't just redeemed so that I could have a good relationship with God. I was redeemed so that I could have a good relationship with you. You see, one of the things that God did is he's like, ever since Adam and Eve, people have not been getting along. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did they start doing? Started beefing, right? going at one another it's your fault no it's your fault it's your fault no it's your fault and then they had kids and their kids started killing each other literally and that's what human beings have been doing now for thousands of years so one way that god is like i i know what i'll do now this was always god's plan i don't mean that he just thought of it this was always his plan from before the foundation of the world but god said i will take this group that is at odds with this group. And in the, in the New Testament, usually it's talking about Jews and Gentiles who are at war with one another. And God said, here's what I will do to help Jews and Gentiles get along. I will put them into one family. Because when you're rightly related to God, if you are rightly related to God, you can't help but be rightly related to other people who are rightly related to God. Now Christians have not always been very good at that. Sometimes we struggle with the implications of this rescue, this redemption, and the reconciliation that unfolds and is described throughout Colossians. For instance, in 1994, there was a genocide in the country of Rwanda where two tribes of predominantly Christian people began to murder each other on Easter. 
and unfolded in a grisly spectacle unlike anything the world has probably ever seen. Why? Because Christians failed to live out the reality of their reconciliation. This rescue that Jesus provides. Because let's face it, if Jesus is the head of the body, and I'm the hand, and Jesus is the head, and I don't get along with you, but you're the other hand, don't we have to figure out how to get along? I mean, if you're one hand and I'm one hand and we're both trying to follow what the head teaches, ought we not love one another? I think one of the most embarrassing, horrifying pictures I have ever seen is from earlier in American history, not that long ago, when a group of Klansmen gathered for a photo. There's probably a hundred of them, members of the KKK, and they're all wearing their white hoods, and they're standing in a church underneath a banner that says, Jesus saves. If Jesus saves, I think we should ask, why are you wearing a hood? If Jesus saves, why are you lynching your neighbors? Christians haven't always gotten this right. Oftentimes, we've done it wrong. That doesn't change what is actually right. Just because we fail to live up to the standards of Jesus Christ, our king does not mean that the king is wrong. It just means that we have to repent. We have to look in the mirror and say, you know what? If Jesus is the king of the church, if he's the head of the body, and I'm an arm, and you're an arm, and you're a leg, and I'm a leg, then let's pursue reconciliation and peace together. And the, the working out of that flows throughout the book of Colossians, specifically when we get to chapter 3. And we talk about relationships between husbands and wives, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, masters and slaves. Paul goes all of those places. And he talks about the way that we ought to treat one another because the king has redeemed us. And he says because of this, Jesus comes to have first place in everything. That's the last phrase of verse 18. Because he's the firstborn from the dead, the one who was the pioneer who opened the door of death, as C.S. Lewis said, he opened the door of death to let us all out. He conquers death, so he has a status that is above death. Wouldn't you like to have a status above death where, like, death can't touch you? When I stood at my, my dad's casket a few months ago, back when he passed in March, I would have loved to, in that moment... For him to have a status that was untouchable by death. But the reality is that Christians believe that because of Jesus, because he has a status as the firstborn over death, he has a status that is above it, untouchable by it, all of his followers are also ultimately untouchable by death. Yes, we die. But not in a final and ultimate sense. Jesus is the firstborn over creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And as a result of all of this, he is first place in everything. Verse 19 says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. This is a, is a poetic way of saying Jesus was fully God. We talked earlier about how Jesus was, was fully human. This is a way of saying Jesus is fully God. He's very God of very God. He's not partly God. Sometimes we can misunderstand the Trinity, and I get it. The Trinity is really hard to understand. Uh, sometimes we're like, some people think, okay, God is like 33% the Father and 33% the Son and 33% the Spirit. And so Jesus is like, got part of the fullness of God. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are, there's one God, three persons, and Jesus has all of the fullness of God. And so does the Spirit. And so does the Father. They have the totality of what it means to be God. Now, if that fries your brain, join the club. My brain's fried too. I'm just telling you what it says, all right? I don't always understand it, but I believe it and I submit to it. Verse 20 says that through him, God reconciles everything to himself. This is kind of what we were talking about earlier. He reconciles things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's interesting that it takes a bloody act of violence to bring peace. Crucifixion was a very common form of execution in the ancient world. Historians tell us that you could go out on the, on the hills around Jerusalem and just look and see that there were dozens upon dozens of people being crucified all at once on a regular basis. So there was nothing special about the act of crucifixion, but there was something special about this one particular one. Because Jesus doesn't die as a guilty criminal deserving of death. He does not die as a martyr. He dies as our substitute. So that he can, according to this verse, make peace through his blood shed on the cross. We were at war with God, the Bible teaches, until Jesus came and made peace by shedding his blood. We were at war with one another until Jesus came and made peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is why Christians talk about the blood of Jesus so much. This is why we observe communion. The, the juice reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus because we really do believe that this blood that was spilled out on a tree 2,000 years ago is what rescues us. It's why we have peace with God and with one another. I told you earlier about a group of uh, African martyrs who stood boldly to proclaim that because Jesus is Lord, Caesar was not. Sometimes we can hear stories like that and we can think, well, that's, you know, that was just like a long time ago. That kind of stuff is still happening today. So uh, about two weeks ago, nearly 300 Chinese pastors issued a declaration of defiance against the Chinese government. Maybe you've heard in the news that since February, uh, the Chinese government has passed new laws uh, very closely regulating the churches of China. And there are millions upon millions of Christians in China. They've been doing things like taking out the Bibles and putting in new edited Bibles, edited by the Communist Party, and suddenly there's like uh, propaganda in these Bibles. They're being given new worship songs by the government, worship songs that celebrate how awesome the Communist Party is. So 300 Chinese churches have taken a stand and they have said, we will announce bad news to our leaders. And the bad news is that God calls you to repent because this is sin. He said, we also announce good news to you. There's a king who wants to save you. And because we serve this king, because Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, we are prepared and our entire church is prepared to lay down its life and to pay the ultimate cost. Our brothers and sisters throughout history, and even today, and other parts of the world, are reckoning 
with what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. If Jesus is truly the king, if the good news means that Jesus is the king over creation and the king of redemption, and he's come to rescue us from sin and to give us a new way of life, ought that not change how we live? I want to make three simple suggestions. Maybe you jot these down on your response card. I think I've got them on the screen. Three ways to respond to this text. First, I think every Christian should sing to the king. This, this text has been so rich, so deep. I'm not even, I feel like, scratched the surface of how awesome and amazing Jesus is as recorded in this passage. But our response as Christians should be to sing. Maybe you're not good at singing. Take it as a metaphor. Worship God. Pray. Sing. Celebrate who he is. When I come to a, to a, a passage like this, I just want to shout. I just want to dance. Maybe you're a poet. Write a poem about how awesome Jesus is. Maybe you're, you're an artist. Paint a picture of the king. And we can all stand together and sing. We're going to sing in just a couple of moments. Whether you're good at singing or not, we can lift our voices and we can sing to the king. We can worship and adore this king. The one who is at the center of the good news. Second, I think we need to submit to the king. We've talked about how Christians in the past and in the present and other parts of the world are choosing to take a stand by submitting to the king. But then sometimes in our comfortable lives, we're like, there's, there's this one realm, there's this one part of my life that doesn't quite belong to Jesus. I know you're the king, but you can't have that. Or you can't have him. You're not in charge of this. And we call ourselves Christians, especially when it's convenient. But do we really truly reckon with what it means to follow Jesus as Lord? To submit to him as the king. If Jesus is truly the king over creation and over redemption, that means he's got everything covered. And there is not a single square inch of my life that is off limits to the king. Jesus is king in the boardroom. He's king in the bedroom. He's king on the streets of Brooklyn. He's king at your job. He's king of your hobbies. He's king of your money. Everything. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of all. If he's not Lord, quit coming to church. I'm serious. Either he is or he isn't. If he is the king, then it's time to follow and to submit to the king. Now, I get it. We struggle with doing that well. I struggle with doing that well. We talked about inconsistencies throughout church history where people struggled to be properly reconciled to one another. Because we are always going to be flawed. We are always going to be sinful. But it is up to us to submit to the king and to make that conscious choice not to go back. We'll always be tempted to go back. We'll always be tempted to return to the life from which we came. But God calls us in verse 22 and 23, Paul talks about being steadfast, clinging to the hope of this gospel, cling to this good news. Don't go back. This good news is life-transforming good news, so why would we want to go back? Instead, we submit to the king. Third, 
I think we can speak for the king. You remember what the word good news was? The word gospel? It was when a messenger would show up and they'd blow the horn and they'd announce good news on behalf of the king. That's what you and I are called to do. If you are a Christian, and I realize you may be hearing, and maybe you're, you're not sure about the claims of Christ, and I understand that, and I respect that. But if you are here, and you're sure that Jesus is king, then it is our duty, it is our responsibility to speak on behalf of the king. To show up in the town square, which is maybe your job, or maybe it's your family, or maybe it's your block, or your apartment building, your group of friends, and to speak on behalf of the king. To share not fake news, but good news. True news. Authentic news. Life-transforming news. Because Jesus is our theory of everything. The good news about who he is as our king truly changes everything. And that's my prayer. For you, that's my prayer for us as a church, is that we would be a church that would be shaped by this good news. That we would follow our king. That we would speak for our king and that we would sing to the king with everything that we've got. Because he's so good. He's so good. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing one final song. Jesus.